The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Gap Toothed Rube Edition. It's Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. On today's show, Judy tells the story of Judy Garland's infamously triumphant, infamously troubled last stand at a series of club dates in London. Uh, we'll be joined for that segment uh, by Slate's own Sam Adams. That movie, by the way, stars Renee Zellweger as Judy, I should say. And then Netflix has hit us with an epic feminist procedural. The story of a rape investigation, though, that vastly undersells it. Uh, we'll get into that. Stars Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette. We will be joined by Slate's own Ingu Kang to discuss. And finally, this is a heavy Slate's own uh, edition. Um, Slate's own Simon Doonan has written a book on drag. It's always a, a crazy pleasure when Simon joins us, as it is when Sam Adams does. Hey, Sam. Hello. Uh, Sam is a senior editor at Slate, and uh, he is uh, one of the three people filling in for the gigantic uh, shoes of Julia Turner. Welcome to the show. Uh, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. Renee Zellweger stars as Judy, Judy Garland, America's sweetheart, as maybe almost nobody remembers her. Not uh, Dorothy lost with Toto and Oz, but uh, a middle-aged woman whose career has all but vanished, in part because, as she herself says, she's uninsurable. Nobody can stake a movie project on a woman so vulnerable to alcohol and pills. Uh, as we discover her, she is desperate for money, which will help her reacquire custody of her kids, at least she believes uh, it will, and she agrees to haul herself together and play a series of shows in London. Uh, this film is directed by Rupert Gould. It's adapted from the Broadway play End of the Rainbow. Let's listen to a clip. No. Come on. No, Sid. Judy. No. No. I'm working harder than you would ever believe. Are you? And right now, my husband is making a deal for me that means I can start over. You're not listening. I have someone I can rely on now. Someone who's helping me make money instead of losing it at the track. Can we not? I'm going to get a place, and they're going to live with me. I don't want them on stage with me. I don't want them in this phony business, and I don't want them anywhere near the bastards who run it. But you have to let me be with them, Sid. I'm a good mother. All right, Dana, let me start with you. Uh, I think people are impressed by Renee Zellweger's performance here, but maybe not so much with the movie. Where'd you, where'd you come out on this? Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry to say that it's kind of one of those biopics. <laughs> I'm feeling glad that I didn't uh, choose to review this, which was really just because of time constraints and other things to write about in the New York Film Festival. But it's the kind of movie that you sort of feel bad trashing because its heart is in the right place. It has an, a really impressive, I think impressive is sort of the right word, more than transcendent uh, performance by Renee Zellweger as Judy. But it's one of those really narrowly focused biopics, narrow both in the time scope it covers and the elements of the performer's life it chooses to focus on that really leaves out almost everything that made Judy Garland interesting and important enough to make a biopic about. So I don't know. I mean, I think I'm the wrong audience for it in a way because I am a huge fan. I've read a couple biographies. You know, I go in sort of not expecting it to be because biopics aren't and shouldn't be faithful to every detail of Judy Garland's life. But to not mess up communicating some really important things about what made her the kind of entertainer she was. And I don't think that the movie quite nails that. But again, there's so much that it does get right. I still think that if you're a huge 
Judy fan if, or a huge Renee Zellweger fan or you're really interested in, you know, biopic performances that go all out doing her own singing, et cetera, you know, trying to recreate, then it's worth seeing. I also wanted to mention that I saw it with my 13-year-old daughter, also a giant Judy Garland fan, and she loved it. You know, she hasn't been jaded by as many of these kinds of biopics as I have. She thought the performance was amazing. She's an aspiring actor herself and was inspired by it. And as we were walking out of the movie, she was saying, oh, you're too critical, mom. You're too analytical. You're not letting it move you. And you're just taking it apart like a movie critic. So throw that in there as well. I think that there are people out there who will be really moved. All right. Well, I want to double back to Dana um, to find out what about Judy Garland's life maybe was not done total justice to in this film. But first, Sam, what do you make of this as a picture? Yeah, I think I'm uh, on the same page with Dana. I mean, I do think it's a really impressive Renee Zellweger performance, although I am not you know, very reliable or accurate Oscar handicapper. I think the chances of her not getting a nomination for Best Actress are pretty slim. Um, And it is, you know, it's a real movie in the sense that it's not just a kind of rote, you know, let's put a bunch of scenes up from her life and have her choose some scenery in it. But it does... You know, Zayna says, I mean, it focuses on these kind of very narrow aspects. And I I, I may just be being too critical here, but, uh, you know, I've grown suspect of this whole genre of famous person biopic where it's like focusing on kind of the end of their life when they were their powers really waning. And it's like the Laurel and Hardy movie from last year. And it, it's just like, could we maybe make a movie about Judy Garland when she was great um, rather than she was basically out of gas? Uh, it's a, I find the whole enterprise a little bit sort of suspect and weird. It seems like a way of kind of, you know, bringing our heroes down to earth or something like that. But it, it's uh, I'm left kind of wondering what, what the point of telling this particular story about this particular time is. This movie totally landed with me. Totally, totally landed with me. And I have to admit, I'm not sure why, but I was completely riveted by her performance. Well, I shouldn't say totally. I have some reservations, but but overwhelmingly landed with me. I loved her performance. I thought it was beautifully paced. Uh, I liked the unity of time and place. It's not a biopic. It's the story of a woman trying desperately to rediscover what people loved about her and her own immense gift and deliver it uh, in order to rescue her life. And I thought the movie had a very precise idea about what it was about and why it selected this specific moment in her life, which is, it was really, I think it was really trying to get at what, and not an not an artist, right, per se, not a genius. It's not an artist or a genius story, but it's really the story of an entertainer. An entertainer is someone who's, dependence on the audience and the audience reaction is very intimate um and the the filaments those tiny little filaments that join an audience and get an audience on the side of what an entertainer is doing are so fragile and that's the key in some sense to her fragility um i loved the supporting performances i loved thin whitrock as mickey deans the younger man who takes an interest in trying to revive her career as in love with her uh, in some way or shape. I loved the relationship with the British handler uh, played by Jesse Buckley, who has to be the reproving nanny who gets her, you know, her Judy Garland trained to run on time. Uh, I thought she humanized that role. I thought that relationship was completely believable. Um, 
I, I'm the rare person who probably liked the movie better than I liked Zellweger's performance, which at moments is astonishing. At moments seems like an impersonation and a little broad. And there's only one thing about the picture I really, really didn't like, um, which was how overly broadly it told the backstory of Judy Garland by going back only to one moment in time, really, um, which was her early career uh, at MGM and really focusing on her relationship with uh, Louis B. Mayer, the mogul, of course, behind the studio um, that created her. And that's played very, very broadly. Like she's, you know, she's like a rube from nowhere. She's completely created by the star system of the studio. Uh, They threatened to withdraw the machinery that supports her as this star if she acts out as an ordinary teenager, including just eating an ordinary amount of calories she's starved over disciplined socially you know deprived um and and apparently this dana as i understand it this actually doesn't really tell do full justice to her complex relationship with both the both the um you know star making apparatus of the studio system and and mayor um i thought that that was overly blunt and and a little telegraphed but otherwise, I mean, there, and there are other aspects of the movie that I really love that I want to uh, get into. But I'm just tell me a little bit more about why this movie didn't land for you, because I, I was quite taken with it. Well, you, you're correct in labeling the MGM flashback parts as, I think, the worst part of the movie, the most schematic and the most biopic-like in the you know derogatory sense of that word, the kind of corny, overdrawn biopic that people speak of when they talk dismissively about biopics. All those things did happen to Judy Garland, everything that's shown in, oh, the, wow. in the flashbacks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of, you know, being forced to eat the chicken soup at the commissary instead of ordering what she wanted and, you know, having pills given to her by the studio, all that stuff did happen. Um, but the way that it's shown, you're right, shows her as this kind of wide-eyed nobody from nowhere, you know, who's being manipulated by the studio. There was manipulation happening for sure. But by the time it started happening, she had been entertaining for years. <laughs> she had been making successful movies with MGM for years. I think the most salient fact that could have been put in this movie, if you want to show what it was like for Judy Garland's movie to cr- movie career to begin pre-Wizard of Oz, when she started doing those Andy Hardy movies with Mickey Rooney, is that her father died almost at the exact moment she signed this contract to start making movies. She'd already been the successful vaudeville entertainer and a sister act. And the moment that she moved into movies, her father, who was a loving, benevolent, generous presence in her life, suddenly died after having not been sick at all. And her mother, who was an exploitive, awful presence in her life, you know, was the one who was there to guide her career. And all of that is prime biopic material. I don't quite know right. you, why you wouldn't right. insert those facts I, and would instead create this, like, fantasy nightmare flashback about this innocent girl. I think they did not want to make a biopic, but they wanted to give you some deeper sense of why this woman was, you know, kind of cracked down to, you know, the foundation, almost foundation of her soul. And they wanted to do it maybe more imagistically. And I think they misfired there. But Sam, let me give you two things that really, really worked for me in the movie that are the opposite of that kind of broadly played, you know, flashback material. Um, her relationship to to London, the city of London, I thought the period elements were done beautifully. I really felt like I was in uh, the London of the late 1960s. And this kind of um, incongruity of her 
in Swinging London in a couple of not very big or overplayed scenes, one in which Mickey Dean suggests she she front the Rolling Stones in this kind of drunk, you know, drunken reverie. I mean, all of those, her relationship to the late 1960s as a relic from the great golden Hollywood past and trying to be a living figure and not a wax figure in that world, both in the, in the scenes in the United States and L.A. and the scenes in, um, in London struck me as really, really, really uh, um, precisely done and precisely realized. And then the second thing, and I'm curious to get both of your opinions on this, because I'm not sure my judgment is right, but it's very sincere, which I thought there was something beautiful and somewhat understated about uh, the way the movie got at Judy Garland's relationship to her uh, gay audience, right? Which is one of the overwhelming associations one now has with uh, posthumously with Judy Garland. Um, uh, And I I thought that that bit where where she becomes... For a night, she just spends a night, you know, hanging out with these two fans of hers. I thought that was beautifully played. I'm I'm really curious whether anyone else thinks that or whether that was just cornball and maybe even borderline offensive. I was, I didn't think it was, but I wasn't sure it wasn't. I, I think those scenes, there's a, there's a gay couple who, gay male couple who starts kind of showing up at her this you know stand that she's doing in London and kind of befriend her and she kind of invites herself like to go out with them and over to their house one night and you realize that she really like doesn't have not only any friends but like anyone she can speak to um those scenes that relationship I actually find really touching there is something about these um you know outcasts kind of finding each other that are not only very poignant but also kind of unexpected I mean that is I think by far kind of the least rote aspect of the movie. Like it's not somewhere you, you expect it to go. Um, and those are kind of lovely little vignettes that kind of step away from some of the more, uh, I think kind of shop-worn observations about, you know, Hollywood and stardom. Uh, the movie ends with a, a quote from The Wizard of Oz, which is, the heart is judged not by how much you love, by how much you are loved by others. And that is certainly kind of the working thesis of the movie that, you know, Judy is vindicated by, you know, she had a horrible life. Um, she was, you know, abused emotionally. And and I think that this one's kind of the first version of the story to really hint at, um, you know, sexually as well, that she was kind of groped and, and molested by Louis B. Mayer, which is a kind of, you know, r- recent uh, revelation that has surfaced. Um, and... You know, but it was in a way it was kind of all worth it because she had the love of the audience. Um, and that is, it's a weird thing to end the movie with. And I don't know either that the film sells it or that that is true or kind of a, <laughs> yeah. a good, good idea to endorse. Um, but I think that's very much kind of where it's at. I mean, this is a movie about her, um, you know, basically being kind of a nobody, having been abandoned by her, even her most devout fans. And then kind of winning them back and getting kind of one last shot at the brass ring and at least being reminded that she can connect with an audience um, in what ends up being, you know, six months before her death. Steve, I completely agree with you that the scene where she goes with the the gay guys to have dinner after they after the show is the best part of the movie. And it's for exactly the reason that Sam just said. I feel like that is the one scene with characters that aren't aren't somehow 
plot drivers that are more concepts than people. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody else seems like, okay, your role is to, you know, be the person who tries to get her from the curtain call after she's taken pills. Oh, your role is to be, you know, the fifth husband that she desperately marries in the last few months of her life. Everybody seems very plugged in and and just about her. And then those two guys are about themselves, you know, even though, ironically, all they care about is the fact that they they get to spend time with her. But it's such a beautiful kind of moment of fan Mm -hmm. fantasy, you know, when they're waiting for an autograph and then she says, hey, how about we have dinner. Um, About the singing, I feel like we can't talk about somebody playing Judy Garland without talking about the singing scenes. And of course, it's now become the obsession of Hollywood that if you do a biopic about a singer, you have to do your own singing. That was not always the case. And I'm not sure in the case of someone like Judy Garland that it it really should be the case. Because however many vocal coaches you have and however hard you work at it, you just nobody's going to have Judy Garland's pipes. And we're going to be aware of that. So this movie depends on several scenes in which she has to convince us that she is this one of a kind entertainer, you know, that Judy Garland was, who was able to keep thousands of people, you know, just in the palm of her hand for hours while singing a concert. And I mean, God bless Renee Zellweger. She works really hard when she's talking. She sometimes is uncannily like Judy Garland, almost, as you say, Steve, too imitatively so. But to me, every singing scene was just pointing at the absence of, of that real voice. Right. I mean, that, I mean, that is one of the reasons why, I think, to sort of answer my own question, why we get these kind of hobbled at the end of their, you know, life stories is because, you know, Renee Zellweger has to do all this work just to basically sing like Judy Garland at her worst. Um, trying to imitate her best is just, you know, impossible. It's like trying to, you know, imitate a supernova or something. But, um, you know, those scenes, the singing scenes for me, I mean, she sells them kind of as an actor. There's one, I think it's it's by myself that's done in a long, um, basically unbroken take. And I, I think that's very effective and you get a, a sense of the drama at it. I mean, it is not like, you know, it is when you were watching her talk, sometimes it is, I was trying to kind of call up the real Judy Garland in my mind and had trouble doing it because she was so on. I don't think you have that problem when she's singing. I mean, the the, the difference is is definitely there, but also there's, um, you know, the, the, I mean, there's no way anybody is going to equal Judy Garland. That's just not possible. So I think you know she gives us a, an idea of that, and that's um, kind of sort of the best we can hope for from something like this. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to defend this movie one more time. I think this is a movie about what it's like to carry around the burden of who you once were, which is which is iconic beyond iconic in the consciousness of virtually every human being on the planet. And you are burdened with being this one single embodied consciousness person and yet you are that thing to everyone else. And are you are you are caught between either telling them all to go fuck themselves and letting them down as brutally as you possibly can because fuck them for putting that incredible burden on you and performing the miracle and living up to it and being at least a plausible version of that person in front of them. And I think in a weird way, like the burden, the mimetic burden of playing Judy Garland as an actress, the artistic challenge of Renee Zellweger is so kind of mimetically linked to the actual theme and story that's being told that it just, it just totally worked for me. I was like, I'm completely in the moment. Other than when they flash back, I'm completely in the moment here. Is she going to be able to get out on that stage? And which is she going to deliver? It delivers. Is she going to dri- deliver the barbiturate driven fuck you? Or is she going to deliver over the rainbow, a note perfect over the rainbow that just sucks the breath out of every lung in the audience? And and I was just, I was with it the whole way. I, I don't know what to say. Anyway, the movie's Judy. We split on it. Curious to know what you think. Uh, go check it out.
All right, before we go any further, this is typically where we talk uh, business. Dana, what do we got? First of all, just a note that Slate has put up a post that collects some of the Culture Gab Fest book recommendations from over the years, including Tana French, who I know Julia was the one who endorsed her, Sally Rooney, that book we all read together, Vladimir Navakov, uh, Stevens and my patron saint of writing, and much more. We will link to that on our show page, or you can just search for Culture Gab Fest Reads in Google to find it. We also have a couple of live shows coming up, as we've been talking about. We'll be in L.A. and in Vancouver in November. That's November 13th in L.A. at the Barnsdall Gallery Theater at Barnsdall Art Park. And on November 15th in Vancouver at the Granville Island Stage. You can find out more information and buy tickets for either of these two shows at Slate.com slash live. I know Julia, as a new Angelino, is really excited to show us around L.A. And uh, I'm hoping that we'll have some kind of field trip related to our our L.A. show. Um, But it all remains to be discovered. You can find out information and buy tickets for both shows at Slate.com slash live. In Slate Plus today, you will get some extra content from our conversation with Simon Doonan about his new book, Drag the Complete Story. We had such a long, fascinating conversation with him that dug back into the history of drag, into his own history with drag, into why drag is having its moment now and how it changed over the three years he was writing the book. And we just couldn't stop asking Simon about this lusciously illustrated book on drag. So if you want to hear the entirety of that conversation and not just what shows up in the main segment, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support the site. For just $35 for the first year, you will help cover the cost of producing our show and all your other favorite Slate podcasts. And of course, you will get extended ad-free versions of the show with extra Simon Dune and Gab and other good benefits. So if you want to support us, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. All right, Steve, back to the show. Unbelievable is a Netflix eight-parter. It combines elements of a police procedural, it's somber and meticulous, with a deeply considered feminist parable. That latter simultaneously asks, what does it mean that men, a male epistemology, runs the world, and what would it be like if a woman's epistemology did instead? I do not mean to be fancy or cryptic. I do really think that that's what the show's about. The action of the show kicks off with a brutal crime. It's very graphic, but we are meant to pay as close, if not closer, attention to what follows, to notice how both the official and emotional obtuseness of the cops assigned to investigate that case so destroy the confidence of the victim that she retracts her complaint. The show then toggles back and forth between the story of the poor young woman orphaned in a maze of Kafkaesque officialdom and the two women detectives trying to catch her rapist, played by Tony Collette and Merritt Weaver wonderfully. Why don't we listen to a clip? I got the call around nine in the morning. The victim was at the hospital by the time I got to her. Nice woman, late 50s, kind of fragile, you know, even before all this. Our first interview, she kept calling herself stupid for leaving her window open. Like every person in Colorado doesn't leave a window cracked at night. Yeah, she just moved into her place like a couple of months before. She wakes up in the middle of the night with this weight on her back. It's a man on top of her, pins her arms, tells her he's got a gun, he's gonna use it if she gives him any trouble. When was this? 22nd, about a month ago. He proceeds to rape her for three hours on and off. I mean, same thing with my victim. Stopping and starting for four hours. Huh. Well, after he did the, the shower thing, by the time she gets out, he's gone. Took her sheets, or pillow, yeah, blankets. Same with mine. He left a scene so clean you could eat off it. My team searched every dumpster within a two-mile radius, every trash can. They scoured ditches. We dragged a pond hoping to find something. The gun, her sheets, or... No luck. Not a... 
All right, we're joined by Ingu Kang, who, of course, is a Slate staff writer covering TV and movies. Uh, Ingu, welcome back to the show. Hello, hello. Uh, I kind of, I didn't exactly misspeak in setting up the show, but I think I, I, it, it, a very important key to the show is that, in fact, these two women are not investigating, to their knowledge, this rape, because that rape has not been reported. And quite a lot of the suspense of the show is generated by the question of whether whether and when their storyline is ever going to link up with this other storyline, making this poor victim something less of an orphan. Uh, I just wanted to make that clear. But Inga, what do you think of the show? I will say that like the circumstances of the show are so <laughs> uh, hard to believe that I think that if it weren't a real story, I would not, I would say something along the lines of like, oh, this is way too much. Uh, the two storylines, the one uh, about the younger victim, Marie, who is played by Caitlin Dever, um, and the one, and the procedural, uh, the more traditional procedural with the two female detectives, they're also separated by three years. And they're also separated by like quite a swath of geography because Marie uh, lives in Seattle and the two women are out in Colorado. And so there is like a significant amount of, uh, I don't know, I guess like substance that uh, divides them and keeps them from finding each other. I would say that overall, I really admired what the show's authors were trying to do while not particularly enjoying the show. Uh, and the authors, maybe we should note here, are, or sort of the creators of the show, are the novelists um, Michael Shabon and Eilid Waldman, and also uh, the screenwriter Susanna Grant, who wrote Aaron Brockovich, among many other projects. Yeah, this is this is substantially similar to my reaction to the show, which was that its ambitions are so admirable, but the execution often seems maybe a tiny bit clunky. But the performances are remarkable. Agreed. I mean, I don't. I wish Julia were here because I have a feeling that she would agree with me that this show is great and unusual and not like any other procedural on TV. Not that I watched that many procedurals, but. I loved it. I absolutely loved the show. I mean, I don't want to go to just like, oh, the performances sort of make up for how not right. how disappointing it is because I'm riveted. I've watched four hours of it now. I can't wait to get home and watch more. And the reason I think is just because of what you were saying, Steve, about this slight. I mean, you called it yes. epistemological, right? I mean, you could call it conceptual, like the the, sh the very slight shift in focus of the show not only makes it much more interesting than any crime procedural I've seen in a long time, but really exposes the weakness of the crime procedural as a genre and makes you realize to what degree, especially in shows like I don't know, CSI, or which is referenced dismissively by the, the detectives in this show, or um, Special Victims Unit, you know, the Law & Order spinoff, how much those shows were dependent on female trauma, usually involving not just rape, but murder, um, as this kind of ground that they would then, you know, build their entire story on. And so this slight shift of focus that, for one thing, there's not a murder. There's these two investigators are investigators of rape, and they want to stop a rapist. And there's not this sort of sense that it needs to be ramped up to somebody's body being dismembered for it to to mm -hmm. matter and for the victims to matter. But 
mainly it's just that the the time in the show that's devoted to the victim's experience compared to the experience of either the cops or you know following what the the criminal is doing which we don't know in this case he so far has not appeared anywhere um it changes everything and so and so the pacing of the show feels completely different the you have no idea from one episode to the next what will happen which i really loved the fact that it takes place in two different locales and several different time zones and that there's many other victims that are interviewed and talked to who are just as interesting as the Caitlin Deaver character that yeah. there's not that familiar sense that we get from a procedural that which I guess is what people find comforting in things like Law and Order, you know, people that are procedural addicts. But there's not that sense that, you know, at the beginning there'll be a crime and then we'll right. quickly move on right. from the crime to the investigation and then we'll get to the trial and then maybe they'll catch the bad guy. This is really much more about, as Ingo was saying, that that bureaucratic, you know, long, long drawn out mess that happens when a rape is reported. And, and the difference that you see when the female investigators enter is not sort of a question of, oh, the world would be utopian if it was run by women and it sucks now that it's run by men. It's more this kind of subtle shift in focus that makes you see everything that's come before right. and, and other procedurals you've seen before differently. Yes, and it's super conscious about that ambition, too. I mean, there's a pointed sentence about knowing how to ask. It's not just that there's a questioner, a question, and a fact pattern. There's a a style and mode of seeing, perceiving, and pursuing what might be the truth that allows you to arrive at it. Um, And uh, I thought that that was beautifully done. But to me, Inga, what makes this work, I mean, I'm kind of with Dana on this. I do think it was compelling, and I watched it through to the end greedily is that it to me the suspense really is generated by the question of whether these two storylines will link up with one another or not it feels like a live possibility that they won't and this poor woman young woman is going to remain like literally and figuratively orphaned and orphaned by the system if if the two storylines don't come together i thought that that was quite compelling and very original I don't know. If, I, I think that the show is definitely structured so that that's what you look forward to. But I think that, I mean, for me, maybe this is like a very TV critic thing to say. <laughs> but like the thing that like really kept me watching was to try to see how the show was going to sort of critique uh, like the traditional TV procedural. Uh, the uh, Unbelievable starts off in like a very different way from I think basically any other procedural. You get like a very like for me grueling seventeen or eighteen minutes. Like it's entirely devoted to her being questioned by the police, and because the suspense of this is not like getting the facts necessarily. It's about like how she's being done wrong by the system. You sort of understand how utterly grueling this process is, but like seeing it, um, especially hours after the crime itself, you see like what an extra layer of trauma that is. And then in the second episode, you get like a very parallel segment you basically have like a modeling by Merritt Weaver's character of like how that uh, interrogative process was supposed to go. And so I think that uh, like, again, the show is clearly ambitious. I think the fact that you have two female detectives uh, who, unlike most of their male colleagues, seem to take this crime with not only like a sense of like justice, but a sense of outrage. I think that's really important. 
I just found so much of the dialogue really dry and statistics heavy. It's stuff like that that just like really made me wish that the execution was as good as its ambitions, I guess. Wow, I wonder why it is that all those scenes did work dramatically for me. I mean, I love the relationship, the kind of troubled mentor relationship between Merritt Weaver's slightly younger cop character and, and Tony Collette's. And I think part of why I like it is that there's this very funny, almost uh, one-upmanship, one-up-womanship, where they try to each be more competent and more thorough than the other. And then there's just some kind of absurd scenes where they're you know bringing up bigger and bigger piles of files to go through to show that they're more dedicated to the case. And so maybe that recitation of statistics for me fit into that dramatically. I don't quite know why, because I'm the first person to cotton onto the idea that, you know, a show or a movie has a great concept, but is dramatically inert. And I don't find this show dramatically inert. Do you? Yeah, Steve? I mean, I no, I don't. I, 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 I come down right in between the two of you. I thought the more obviously procedural elements of it were a little rote and a little familiar for exactly the reasons that Ingu points to. I love the performances. I I'm so, I I went so long. Tony Collette. I bought I bought low back in the day and just watched the stock rise and rise and rise. I mean, I just I love everything Tony Collette does. I will follow her anywhere. I don't know Merritt Weaver's work, but now I am eager to discover it. I I, I her delivery is so unique. It 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 is so studiedly low key and contemplative. Um, I, I really believed her and loved her in this role. So in that sense, I was able to get past some of the maybe, uh, you know, woodenness or whatever of the, of the procedural aspect. And as I said, I was drawn along completely by the suspense of whether the two storylines would uh, braid together. But I, there, there were definitely moments where I thought you could have substituted for the spoken, actual spoken line of dialogue, the sentence, but we need eight episodes instead of six. Um, it, it just, it's such a classic example of the eight episodes I don't think were merited. I think this was a four to six part show stretched out to eight. And that led to some airless moments for me. It does sort of drag on. I think the mystery, the women who were assaulted by the rapist uh, have their day in court. I think it's clear from that sh uh, scene that this show takes a woman's trauma seriously. As much as those parts of it were interesting. And as much as I could see how much the writers were trying to do something different, I think also dwelling in that space of trauma and being asked to take it so seriously, which of course, a trauma like that deserves. It's unbelievably hard to sit with for eight hours. I don't know, maybe this is like a deficiency on my part, but having to sit with all of that pain was really difficult for me. And I think that's also one of the reasons why I maybe enjoyed this less than Dana. It just, I really truly appreciate the fact that we're being asked to look at rape differently and yet it was just like very hard to sit through. Yeah, it's a downer. There's no question. It's But it's not a miserableist show. You know, I mean, I feel like it's not a show that sort of voyeuristically settles in on the pain of, of the victims. There's also I, I thought there was a, that there was also humor and, you know, friendship and moments in the show that had something going on besides just the misery 
of investigating rape. What about you, Steve? Um, yeah, I'm somewhere in between, but trending towards uh, Dana. I, I really, it, it finally came together for me, especially towards uh, towards the end. Uh, all right, well, the show is unbelievable. It's on Netflix. We're sort of split. Uh, tell us what you think of it. Ingu, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Simon Doonan uh, has been the creative ambassador to Barney's, the department store, the legendary department store. Uh, he's a longtime Slate contributor. He's the author of many, many books, including Soccer Style, The Magic and Madness, and now of Drag, The Complete Story. Simon, welcome back to the show. Hello. Let me throw this at you. I'm very curious to hear if this is a, a, a sensible place to start. Is one of the reasons you wrote this book that drag has gone so mainstream and in going mainstream, maybe something about its essence has been a little lost? Um, actually, it's kind of the opposite of that because, um, <clears throat> you know, in the 90s, drag was losing some momentum because it sort of was losing its marginal status a little bit. And people were wondering where would drag go? What would happen with drag? And um, no one predicted what would happen two decades later. So, you know, in the late two decades later, we now have this extraordinary situation where drag is this explosive obsession on a global level. And I think there's four main reasons for that. One is RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, has given this incredible platform to drag. Um, two, we're in the middle of this extraordinary gender revolution that nobody saw coming two decades ago. No one could have predicted this extraordinary world of gender fluidity and androgyny and pronouns and all the stuff we're going through where many people, cis people, gay people, trans people, choose to identify as drag queens. Um, there's extraordinary new genres of drag emerging, like the look queens that are very meticulous, like Ryan Burke and Sasha Velour and Kim Chi. That's a new genre of drag. Then there's the huge politicization of drag that's happening now, where, you you know, Meryl Streep is dragging up as President Trump, like drag queens are becoming very activist. So... There's basically four explosive bonkers reasons why I thought, yeah, now, drag now. I, I think you're right, right? Like some, in, if you had said to someone as late as 1990 or maybe even as late as 2000 that there was going to be a revolution in consciousness about gender uh, that was going to melt virtually everyone's preconceived categories of what uh, 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 sexuality is, what gender is, what these are biologically, what these are performatively. Uh, they would have been shocked, I think, um, that essentially Judith Butler would make its way into the, you know, uh, wider consciousness of the of the society. Do you have any sense of why that might have happened? No, I don't. I, I lack vision. I tend not to see things coming like I could never have predicted the whole um, iPhone revolution, you know, I don't have that kind of vision. I think yeah. the world's going to stay the way it is forever and then it just doesn't and I'm constantly shocked. I think that's why I'm probably good at reacting to it. I'm like, wow, look what's happening. All right, well, let's turn to the book. This is a backward look. T talk about how you broke the subject down into its parts. Well, I started off doing it chronologically, you know, because that seemed the obvious place to start and it was sort of a dismal result because... Yeah, it kicks off with some great stuff in ancient Egypt and 
Rome and Greece and mythology, and then the Middle Ages, hello. I mean, (laughs) there aren't any VHS tapes of people, you know, sashaying away during the Middle Ages. Like, there's a significant lack of documentation um, for, for, you know, the Dark Ages. So um, I thought, yeah, that's not going to work. So then I broke it down thematically. Can you talk about what some of the themes are? Because I really had fun paging through this and never knowing what was going to come next because it's not chronological. It's more thematic. So you'll be turning the pages and there's a whole there's a whole chapter on kind of trouser rolls and castrati and opera and things like that. Um, as you were looking through history, what made you decide to group certain things together? Um, well, I love history. And I get sad when I think that people are disengaging from history in the way that I learned it. Because I think history can be enormously reassuring. And I think, you know, young people lament the times that we're living in because they don't really have the kind of horrible reference points for the brutality and horror of history. So um, they don't know how good they are. It's it enormously now. reassuring to look at history. Um, it's also really fun. So I tend to. I think I have a good nose for pick, cherry picking the sort of um, cheeky, juicy things like, you know, the stuff from the Roman Empire or, as you mentioned, the castrati when women weren't allowed to sing in opera roles. You know, they used castrated men who were very famous and very rich. And who were brought up for the for the role, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they were, were sort of groomed and designated that they would grow up to be castrati. Yes, and then they were madly competitive um, with each other, um, Farinelli and, um, and I can't remember the names of the other ones. but They had massive followings, right? <clears throat> massive followings. They were extremely haughty and bitchy and crazy and festooned in diamonds and they had cliques that followed them and it was very funny and very interesting. I want to read one passage just to give people an idea of how your voice translates to um, historical storytelling. I mean, this was almost chosen at random. Maybe, maybe we should have uh, Simon read it. To oh, sure. That's voice. great. I'll yeah. hand it to you to read. Um, so so this is the beginning of a chapter called Louis XIV's Drag Race, <laughs> which is about uh, Baroque drag. Just read the first paragraph here. Um, this is the sound of me unzipping my handbag and getting my glasses out. Oh, that's what that was. Very nice glasses case. Not surprising. Shakespeare died in 1616, thereby missing the dawn of the Nelliest period in history, the Baroque. The flowering of the Baroque period, early 17th to late 18th century, brought us ornate styles in painting and dress. European buildings from this period, with their hallucinogenic embellishments, resembled drag queens caught in tornadoes. With their satin frocks, lace mouchoirs, powdered wigs, and novelty beauty marks, the aristocratic men of the court of Versailles got seriously in touch with their feminine sides. I love that image of the Baroque buildings being drag queens caught in a tornado. It's fantastic. Um, I don't know. I think I just I wanted to hear that in your voice. Um, oh, well. That's all. But the, but there's just a, a wit and a lightness with which you tell this this history, although, you know, you're really digging into some serious stuff that, that I absolutely loved. I want to ask you about the images because we haven't talked about this as an art book. I mean, it's, you know, the size yeah. of, a, of a coffee table book. It's got an image on basically every spread. I don't think that there's any two pages of this book that don't come with some sort of big, beautiful, splashy image. And uh, I wanted to know, because you're a, an artist and a, you know, a person whose whole life has been about putting things together in a beautiful way, what part you had in the visual assembling of the book? 
Well, as, as the text came together, I would start flagging images that I found online, you know, in various photo resource places. And then um, working with this fantastic girl in London, Heather in Bromley, who um, she would then go through the complex process of negotiating the rights to the pictures. the rights to the pictures because you know if you get a bunch of pictures from Getty or one of the agencies you can get a different price and then certain photographers wanted a direct communication from me, you know, a reassurance from me that this was what kind of book this was. Um, so it's a very complex process. Um, you know, the fact that 100% of my proceeds were going to charity, I would often mention that, not to get the picture for free, all the pictures were paid for. Um, but just to say, you know, I'm this is, a, this is I'm not making millions of dollars off this, this is a passion project. So, you know, it's a very complex thing. Once you've written the book, you're like, oh, vey, and you have to get into this picture thing. But because I am a visual person, and I'm used to dealing with corporate stuff, you know, I'm, I'm a grown up. In fact, I'm an old grown up. Well, the images really play with the text beautifully. I mean, you almost always have, whether or not you're directly writing about that illustration, you almost always have a visual equivalent to what whatever it is that you're trying to, to touch on. No, I wanted the pictures to be this feast that would pull young people into the world of history and get them excited about history and realize they had a way in. You it know. is so much so that I've had the book for a few days now, and I've spent most of the time just dreamily paging through looking at the pictures. Then my eyes will alight on a paragraph like that one, and it's delightful. Oh, thank you. Um, Simon, talk a little bit about how you made the leap from football, or as we call it in this country, soccer, um, to uh, drag. Well, bizarrely, it wasn't that big a leap. Um, you know, the book I wrote about soccer was a celebration of the excess and fun and crazy culture around soccer players, most specifically European soccer players, Ronaldo, Beckham, you know, the amazing culture that builds up around, uh, has built up around soccer. So it's a lot about self-presentation, haircuts, Lamborghinis, wags, you know, ink, clothes. So, um, yeah, there was there was definitely a, if it was a there's a Venn diagram. There's an overlap between soccer players and drag queens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to ask: Does Rudy Giuliani appear in your book anywhere? Oh my goodness, he should have been in the. Uh, <laughs> well, I have a radical drag chapter. Um, you know, where I talk about the politicization of drag. Yeah, he should have been in there. Did he? you write? Did you write about Meryl dressing up as Donald Trump? There's a great picture of her. Oh, in I haven't there, gotten in to radical that yet. Drag, yes. Okay. Um, and you know, women drag kings. I have a big drag king chapter, and the politicization of drag. A lot of women are playing key roles in that. You see that on Saturday Night Live. Um, you know, for Donald Trump to see his lieutenants you know, debunked via drag. I I think that really is a great piece of effective satire. Um, He actually says, I don't like my people to look weak, you know. Mm. So uh, it's a great way of sticking it to him. All this stuff they did with Sean Spicer and Melissa McCarthy. Of course. Yeah, there is something to that, right? That that as as these gender categories are becoming more liquid and flowing into one another a little more promiscuously, there's this doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on masculinity and hypermasculinity um, that's hugely defensive, very angry, um, and uh, and very hardened. Um, 
I don't know what to make of that insight, but it does seem to characterize a lot of the world we live in. That gender is, that Trump's racism and nativism are so out front in a way, but the truth is what he did is misogynistically defeat a woman and in part by embodying masculine stereotypes that gender maybe is, is, um, as should be as prominent um, a part of our uh, criticism of him. Yeah, and I think um, the satire of drag, you know, it's a fantastic satirical weapon and they just go for it. Um, There's many things happening in, among with drag kings, not the least of which there's two parallel things, you know, doing these great parodies of toxic masculinity. But then there's also been a move away from that among certain drag kings because so as not to celebrate toxic masculinity. Because in the 90s, drag kings often um, presented themselves in sort of blue collar archetypes of masculinity, um, mechanics, Hell's Angels, um, tough guys. Now there's sort of a different thing in the drag king community where there's sort of these dandified effete drag kings. Which sort of harks back to more English music hall style, right? Or the the drag kings of the turn of the century. Yeah, the kind of dandies. and um, But actually... Yes and no, because some of the the early musical drag kings, they were essentially doing these hilarious parodies of Victorian masculinity, which was very daring and fascinating and fun for people, men and women. And I think that's why back in the musical era, those women, Hetty King, Vesta Tilly, they were hugely successful. I don't think I can overstate that, how wealthy they became doing these hilarious moustache-twirling, cane-twirling parodies of, of Ed- Edwardian Victorian men, and, and people loved it. All right. Well, the book is called Drag, The Complete Story. It's by Simon Dunan. Simon, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's always just a total delight. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse, uh, and our pr- producer, Benjamin Frisch, is going to come out from behind the glass and join us to endorse because we'd be uh, lonely otherwise. Ben, thanks for coming in. First day, nah, what do you have? Uh, I'm going to give two Judy Garland-related endorsements so that people who are interested in her life and her work can, and who don't want to see the Renee Zellweger film, or they do and they want to know more, can go down that path. So the best biography of her that I know of, and I should say that this was recommended to me by Mark Harris, friend of the podcast and film historian, and I knew that he would know what's the best biography of Judy Garland. So I wanted to read one, asked him, and he recommended Get Happy by Gerald Clark, which was written in 2001 and is, you know, a pretty, I would say, balanced view of her life. I mean, one that doesn't burrow down into the dark aspects just to be dark, but that also doesn't airbrush anything and, you know, appears to be incredibly well-researched. I don't know if it's been topped since by an even better researched biography, but it's important for biographies to be readable too. And this one's very readable. So Get Happy by Gerald Clark, a great way to learn about Judy Garland's life. And also, to me, not only the best performance of an actor as Judy Garland, but Probably one of the best biopic performances I've ever seen was Judy Davis playing Judy Garland in Me and My Shadows. Do you know that show, Ben? It was a it was a nineties, no, maybe two thousand one miniseries, yeah. 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 Um, that I think was just on network TV. I mean, it was, you know, back in the days before Uber's super golden TV era. Uh, and uh 
And it was, as, as I remember, somewhat plotting as a kind of biopic treatment. It was an adaptation of a book by Lorna Luft, who is a character in this new Judy Garland movie, too, her second daughter, with her ex-husband at the time of the movie, Sid Luft. Uh, Lorna wrote a memoir about growing up with her mother and, you know, how dark it was, like way darker than the Renee Zellweger movie is, is willing to go. But she also loved her mother, was very conflicted. Uh, I haven't read that book, but it's adapted into this miniseries that has Judy Davis as Judy Garland in an absolutely just spellbinding performance that goes so far beyond imitation. It's not one of those things where she looks uncannily like her, but she moves uncannily like her and just sort of has that same frenetic kind of energy that the late Garland could have. And also a young Alison Pill as Lorna, absolutely stunning performance. And there are scenes with that movie where the two of them you know, have these conflicts over Judy's incredible narcissism and neediness, but also kind of, you know, lovability and fragility that when I think about what she must have been like, Judy must have been like as a person in everyday life, that's the the image that I would get and not the Renee Zellweger. Like there's no way, however studied and beautiful her performance was, that it could overlay what, what Judy Davis accomplishes. So Me and My Shadows, which unfortunately I think right now can only be seen on YouTube. That's pretty sad that it's not streaming anywhere. Um, but you can watch the entire thing for free on YouTube uh, and then read Get Happy. Oh, very cool. Ben, what do you got? Okay, so I have two LA-related um, endorsements. The first, everyone can enjoy. It's the podcast called Welcome to LA. Uh, it is just a fantastic uh, sort of narrative podcast from KCRW, the storied public radio affiliate in Santa Monica, I think. And um, it's just a series of stories about half of them are about the producer, like literally moving to LA and his like adventures and moving to LA. And the other half are sort of character studies from people living in LA. And they are breathtaking, hilarious, sad, bizarre. My favorite episode is called The Recruiter, um, which is a collaboration with the great podcast Love and Radio. Uh, highly, highly recommend you check that out. My second endorsement, um, I was just in LA and I went to something called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Have you ever oh, heard I've of heard this? I've heard of it. I've never been. I've always wanted to come. Yeah. So the Museum of Jurassic Technology is like, it is, says that it's a museum about the study of technology in the Jurassic era, but nobody ever explains what that means. <laughs> it's been described to me as a deconstruction of the idea of a museum. Yeah, it's like it is like an art piece, but where the art piece is the entirety of the museum. It's like there are all of these very bizarre little displays that look like museum displays that should mean something, but don't. Like they'll, but so what's the actual object you'd be looking at, for example? So some of them are actual objects. Like um, they have these tiny microscopic um, mosaics that you look at through a microscope. And so those are like clearly art objects. But then you'll have things that just clearly seem kind of made up. There's this whole section about um, like medical treatments some of which are probably real, some of which are not. There's a whole fantastical bestiary section where you like look at these things, but then there's these holographic projections inside of the book. It's like incredibly hard to describe. And then at the top of the museum, there's like a tea room where there are just like doves flying around and you get served tea. And it is one of the strangest places I've ever been. And, um, I think that listeners to this podcast will really, really dig it. If you are in L.A. or live in L.A., um, check out the music. Maybe we should all visit technology. it together when we do our live show. Oh, my there. God. I think, Steve, you would uh, 
flip out for this place. There's this I one. Am, I am already. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, the mere fact that you're having trouble describing it makes it seem like a place that has to be visited. There's a whole po- there's a whole section that's just dioramas of um, trailer parks. <laughs> we gotta go. We gotta go to this. Uh, all right. Well, this week, first of all, I got to kick off. I got three bits of business. Number one is a correction. I misnamed the uh, Spinane song. It's not luscious. It's luminous by the Spinanes that that let me know that Julia Turner was a carbon-based life form. Um, go check that out. It is such a great song. Uh, as for this week, um, doubling down on the Judy theme of the show, she did a series of concerts at Carnegie Hall in 1960 or 61, I think 61. Uh, and it came out as Judy at Carnegie Hall. It's regarded as one of the greatest live albums ever recorded. Oh, it love captures, it so much. Same, it's, just, same. it's just an incredible record, right? I mean, it's 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 just one of the greatest live albums ever recorded. I mean, it's a, it's just... And it the degree to which all of the drama of whether or not this person will have a public nervous breakdown or deliver the most heart-rending performance uh, of an American songbook standard you've ever heard is audible in the recording. I mean, it, 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 you just gotta listen to it if you don't know it. It's, it's just indispensable. Uh, Something else um, that's really audible in it, Steve, is is her the way that she would interact with the audience and create this sense of yeah. intimacy with the audience, uh, which is somewhat captured in the Renee Zellweger performance where she'll sort of sit at the edge of the stage and take her shoes off. And she would do things like that. You know, I don't know if it's true that she, for example, walked on a table as she does in the movie, but it was that kind of thing. It was an extremely uh, interactive experience to see her shows. And so I love reading testimonials of people who were at that famous Carnegie Hall concert, you know, because it really is like an event that they remember for the rest of their lives, which is yeah. sort of incredible. And and the that recording in particular is spectacular because it captures everything. There are no, a lot of patter in between there's songs. There's so much patter and banter. And there's just like a minute of basically silence when you can hear the orchestra members shuffling around. Like more It's a than, real record of a live performance. Yeah, You're more right. than any other live recording that I know of, it sounds just very authentic to it like being in that space. Yeah, I'm so glad you guys know it and love it uh, uh, as much as I do. It's Judy at Carnegie Hall. Um, I think it's on Spotify. It's, I think, a total of like close to 30 uh, tracks. Um, but then uh, I don't typically listen to or endorse podcasts, but I am absolutely digging The Shrink Next Door. Ben, have you tried that one yet? No, no, I haven't listened to that one yet. Uh, veteran New York Times journalist Jonah Sarah stumbled onto a story um, and he researches it and does it wonderful justice. It happened sort of to him personally or enough to him personally that he's both the guy thrown into the middle of a crazy situation and he's just a wonderful, dry veteran reporter who knows how to treat it as a fact pattern, as a set of facts. Very gifted storyteller, has a wonderful voice, and also he comes from an era and the story com- kind of comes from an era of of when something that i would think of as old new york was still very much alive audibly alive and a lot of the voices that you hear um in it uh just i mean i don't know how to put it just an old time hard bitten worldly but strangely tender ethnic new york right like sort of jewish italian on and on uh new york city that i think is kind of aging out and certainly being priced out but boy you really hear it in a lot of the audio in this in this uh in this podcast uh it's pretty gripping i haven't finished it but i am completely sold on it the shrink next door check it out i will yeah ben thanks for coming in uh it's always a pleasure to have your voice uh 
added to the show. Yeah, always fun. Uh, Dana, that was a good one. Uh, yeah, thanks, Steve. That was a fun one. Yeah, thanks. That was great. Happy together. Happy together. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. We love it. I really mean it. We love it when you email email us. We've been getting a lot of really good ones. Keep them coming. That's uh, uh, culturefest at slate.com. You can interact with us on Twitter. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Um, our production assistant is Cleo Levin. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch for Simon and Sam and Ingu. And, of course, Dana Stevens. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We had a fun week uh, this season. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. In the book, I separate comedy drag and glamour drag because comedy drag historically has been the key figures are often straight men who are doing these sort of fairly misogynist parodies of women, you know, that, that you know, were uh, clickbait in the Victorian music hall.